So I want to talk a little bit about kind of why we study Torah, but kind of really take a step further into our uh, journey, into our discussion. Um, there's a commentary on the Torah, well, not on the Torah, on, on, on mitzvahs, a book on mitzvahs, written in the 13th century by a fellow by the name of Rabbi Aaron Halevi. No one, no one really knows who this person is. We know his name. We don't exactly know who he is. There's a lot of a reason to believe that this is what this is someone who known, known as the Ra'ah. That was his acronym, Rabbi Aaron Halevi. Either way, what he did is that he took a 613 mitzvahs and he broken them down into order how they appear chronologically in the Torah. So the very first mitzvah, for example, that appears in the Torah is be fruitful and multiply. The very last mitzvah of the Torah is write a Torah scroll. That's right. What's the middle mitzvah? I have no idea. I'm just, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, but, the, you know, it's somewhere in the middle, right? Um, yeah, I guess there'll be mitzvah 307 or whatever, right? Um, and, you know, there's, you could go find. And he goes through the three mitzvahs in Genesis, the many, many, many mitzvahs in Exodus, even more mitzvahs in Leviticus, and, of course, the most mitzvahs in, uh, I think, Leviticus. Uh, yes. Leviticus has the most. No, um, Deuteronomy? I don't remember. One of them. Leviticus. Well, this, well, the one, the partial that has the most is Tisaitse in, uh, in Leviticus, but in Deuteronomy. Uh, but see, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Either way, he goes through, and what he does is he breaks down the mitzvahs. And he says, okay, these are the basics, like what the mitzvah is, when it applies, to whom does it apply, what's the reason behind it. It's very fascinating. If you want to like, learn about any mitzvah, uh, there is, um, you get the book of mitzvahs, as they call it. Now they're translating it into English. Our school's doing a fantastic job translating it into English. And it kind of gives you like a snapshot about a mitzvah. It doesn't go too, you know, too super deep. It's called the Book of Mitzvahs. It's called the Book of Mitzvahs. So Sefer HaChinuch. Sefer means like the Book of Education. It doesn't go super deep, so it's really nice. Because, you know, because any mitzvah out there, any single one of them at a 613, can be its own book. If you actually delve into every aspect of the mitzvah. This is like kind of like an overview. In one book, it has all the mitzvahs. And it gives you like a very nice view on a mitzvah. So whatever, whatever it may be. You know, he has, for example, uh, in the mitzvah of making a fence around your roof. You know, there's a mitzvah to put a fence around your roof. Why? People shouldn't fall over and die. So he gets into the whole question of, wait a minute, if someone's on my roof and they fall over and die, doesn't God want them to die? Huh. So, so why do I need to put a mitzvah? I need to put on a roof to prevent people from dying. But wait a minute, if someone dies, it's God wants them to die. So why, so why should I put it on? That's a nice question, right? That's an interesting kind of, he like goes off to this philosophical question, what happens? You know, what is our role uh, and what is our responsibilities and how much do we rely on God and say, oh, the Almighty will take care of me and I don't need to put uh, up any preventive uh, measures to save myself. Like, like, you know, he kind of analyzes the mitzvah very, very briefly, very kind of gives you a little flavor of it. Either way, in his introduction, he asks, he asks our question, why do we have a Torah? Right? After all, we are kind of simplistic entities, you know. Uh, what do we need? We need food, shelter, water, you know, we need sustenance, we need companionship. Like, why do we get the Almighty's Torah? Remember, when we talk about Torah, it's not just wisdom. It's not, it's not mathematics. It's the Almighty's brain. Think about that. Why do we have that? And he's essentially asking the question we've been asking in the past couple of weeks. Why such a precious Torah to us, to humans? And you know who asked the question as well? The angels asked the question as well. Moses goes up to heaven and um, and the angels say, wait a minute, 
<clears throat> something's awry, right? There's a, what are they saying, the force? There's a, what's called the force? There's a disruption of the force? I don't know. You guys should know this better than me. Right? There's a disruption of the force. What's going on? There's a human traveling in heaven. This is not supposed to be. And they say, they, they talk to the man, what, what is the Yulud Isha? Why is there a, uh, a, 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 a uh, progeny of a woman, so to speak? Like someone who's born from a woman. Why is that entity traveling amongst us? So the man says, oh, well, I'm going to give him the Torah. What? You're going to give the Torah to Buster Vadam to flesh and blood, the Almighty's Torah? You're going to give it to, the, to, these, to these humans? And they started having flames coming out of their nostrils. And Moshe's like, oh, goodness, I'm, this is how I'm going to die, right? I'm going to get incinerated. So Moshe says, so the man says, you know what you're going to do? Grab onto my chair, the heavenly throne, and you'll be spared. Moshe grabs into the chair. And the man says, okay, they said, they asked you a question. How do you respond? They're saying, wait a minute. Well, we, the Torah should not be given to humans. Moshe, you want the Torah? Answer them. And what does he say? So he says, okay, I'll answer them. So he says, look at this. Hmm. Let's just say the Torah. Honor your father and mother. Um, Mr. Angel, you have a father and a mother? Oh, of course not. <laughs> they don't. There you go. Check one. Torah's for us. He says, um, <coughs> you know, with the... Huh? Well, with the fence, exactly. But he gives a bunch of examples. I'm the old examples. It's like Bar and Shabbos, uh, 88, I think, B. He's, he does, he's like, do you have, um, gosh, I don't remember what he says. Where's Chodesh? The Torah says, I am the Lord God, the, the Lord Almighty God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Did you guys go to Egypt? Angels, you went to Egypt? Why should you have the Torah? Don't do work on Shabbos. You guys do work? Don't murder. Don't have adultery. You guys do that? No. Don't steal. You guys have any envy? So what Moshe tells him, he says, you know, our humanity, like our flaws, ironically, are the ones that give us the right to have the Torah. But either way, like, they're asking a good question, and Moshe kind of has to scramble for an answer. But why? The question is why. So yes, yes, the Torah is made for us. It's tailor-made for us. But why? What about the Torah? What does it do for us? So he goes, he says something fascinating. He says that a human is really a, cre- a creature that has no peer, has no parallel. He says, you're very simple creations like angels. Angels don't live in conflict. <coughs> they don't have a body, exactly. All they are is pure intelligence, pure rational reason intelligence, pure spirituality. That's all they are. There's no conflict, there's no free will. They, 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 all they do is what is spiritual, what is correct, what God wants them to do. And then you have animals, and animals are all instinct. And there's no grappling with the mysteries of the world. There's no, 
You know, there's, you know, there's no pondering. It's simple. It's, it's instinct. An animal is programmed to do what it does. Then you have humans. We're instinctual. You blinked? Sorry about that. <laughs> you blinked? Why? Because there's an animalistic side to us as well. Like, we are programmed to behave a little bit like animals, right? When we're hungry, we have to go chase down food. And if we're cornered, we have our fight or flight responses. And we need sustenance. And we're reactionary. And we're animalistic on one hand. On the other hand, we're able to totally transcend that. But we're able to choose to do something against our instinct. We both have instinct and the ability to negate that instinct. We're half beast, half angel. That's what we are. And that's what our life is really about. Our life is about this conflicted existence. On one hand, we're spiritual, we have the soul, even though that, that part of us is we don't feel it as much, but that's our reality. On the other hand, we're instinctual, and we want to be as base as, as we can be. We want to be want to live like animals, really, right? Caring about only our well-being and our pleasure. That's all we care about sometimes. And every human kind of lives within this spectrum. You're some band between animal and angel. And we have Moshe, who's literally an angel. Moshe, Moshe's body wielded no influence over him. Moshe was able to go up there and talk to angels. How do you talk to angels? How do you do it? Well, if, if you're maybe able to do it, you're able to do it. So that's Moshe all the way at the far end of the spectrum. And then you have other people that they're just instinctual. That's who we are, and that's, and that's, and that's what life's all about. Now, what happens if we do nothing? If you take a human, you drop him into planet Earth, and you don't do anything. Right? What is the default? Is it angel or is it animal? It's going to be animal. 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 It's going to be animal. Yeah. That's absolutely right. If you do nothing, right, you're going to be an animal. By the way, I'll tell you guys an easy way to remember this. Which, at what stage of our lives are we most like animals? All of us. Birth. At birth, exactly. Babies, all they care about is their own physical well-being. They, they care nothing about anyone else. Really, they could care less about anything else. You know, if your mom hasn't slept all day, all night, whatever, and you're hungry or you're a little bit uncomfortable, you will bang your fists and you will scream your lungs out until you get what you want. Who does that? You have to be so narcissistic, so self-centered, selfish. All you care about is yourself. We think of these pure babies and they're so adorable and so delicious, right? But if, you, if, but if you actually zoom out and say, okay, I have an individual, this is a human, that demands food in the middle of the night. Demands it. And will do nothing, will stream on top of their lungs. You say, oh, goodness, what a terrible person. Like, I wouldn't have one person to have next to me. Well, that's babies. And of course, babies are adorable, and babies are pure and innocent. I'm not, of course, I, I agree with that. But if we just zoom out and say, don't give me a picture of the person. Just describe me their behavior. The eating gets all over them, all over them, right? 
they just throw up in public. Can you imagine people just in public over strangers? <laughs> you ever held a baby? And like, oh, what a beautiful baby. Right, yeah. a, you know, a jet stream of, of, uh, of you know, half-chewed food. Just Who does that? Babies. Only babies, right? That's the way we start off. And life is about fixing that. We could say a little bit, you know, maybe poetically, man is a small world. Just like we have this national mission to fix the world, each one of us has an individual mission to fix our own world. And we start off with a corrupted world, with a world that is just so, so much skewed to the animalistic side of the unimaginable. And then over time, the hope is good parenting will kick in. The hope is that a little bit of our intellectual side will kick in. And we'll start edging closer towards maybe the middle. That would be nice. Getting, you know, but getting also spiritual. Says the Chinuch, if we didn't have Torah, we wouldn't be able to get there. Torah is the greatest pencil sharpener for our minds. The Torah hones our minds. Right? I want to tell you guys something personal. When I was in Yeshiva in Israel, and I'm there with, you know, I was in Yeshiva in various different Yeshivas, but especially when I was in the Israeli Yeshivas. And there's some students there that they're, they're what well, we would call them, obsessive about Torah. They're really obsessive about Torah. You know, we Americans live with the motto of everything in moderation, right? Everything in moderation. The Israelis are like, no, 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 Torah with obsession. You know, and you see these guys, and it, you can almost hear their brains rattling. You know, and if you want to present any idea that's not a thousand percent airtight, they'll find the problem. Like these are these are really titans of intellect. That's what they are. Razor sharp minds. You know where they get it from? They got it from the Torah. You know? The, the, it's as if the Torah is just sharpening our minds. Sharpening, 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 sharpening. And what happens when your mind is sharp? Right? Your mind works and your mind is proactive. And your mind is going to propel you to the more spiritual, intellectual side. And you know where you'll end up on the band? Much closer to where you want to be, much closer to being an angel. And that's why we have Torah. If we don't have Torah, what's going to be with us? We won't have any guidance. We won't withhold from anything. We won't be able to hone and enhance and sharpen our mind. What's going to be? What's going to be? We'll end up being, unfortunately, skewed closer to the way we would be without anything. So Moses was probably the most angel-like person that ever roamed the earth. And was was his ultimate pleasure the angel? And did he any other pleasure besides that? Do you think like he like a good steak would really entice him? No, he didn't. He didn't have to eat. right? Well, for forty days, we know he didn't eat, right? So his most, his only was his only was that his the greatest accomplishment a human or a person well, can the, have? Well, has become more angel like than everybody else. Well, it's not about a competition. It's everyone has their own life to live. Right. Um, it's, it's a good question um, as to whether or not Moshe, was he greater 
in this paradigm than Adam was or not? That's a, that's a good question. A lot of people grapple with that question. Yeah, because he, you even said his face was... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I didn't say that. I, I just quoted what the Talmud says, yeah. what the Torah really says. The Torah says that people could look at Moshe because his face was so bright like the sun, right? It's as if his soul was just beaming forth and his body was not at all inhibiting it. And therefore, the people couldn't look at them because just like you wouldn't be able to look <coughs> at an angel, right? you can't look at, it, at Moshe's soul. You couldn't. You couldn't. Uh, but and I, I, th- I think it's no coincidence that we find the conversation that Moshe has with the angels. We could find that he's he's able to talk to them mano a mano, so to speak, right? Because his angel, his inner angel, was able to co- communicate. That's how he was identified. Thought, right? You don't speak. Right, but a, a thought is a spiritual thing. Remember, to us, we're so used to the idea of thinking. Right? If you could try to explain to me, like, just explain to me what happens when you think. What happens when you take your head and you stop and you really think hard? And you think until your head hurts. What's happening? How do you define that? We, we, where is this working? Where is these cows? It's in your brain. It's like it's very hard to kind of, you know, when your body breaks down food, you digest something. We can kind of follow what ha- what's happening. You know, we could like get a 3D model and see what's happening and how it's going through your digestive. So we could see that. Brains, it's just like, what is it? It's much closer to the spiritual side. What do you mean, Ayn? Ayn, like Yishna Ayn. Oh. Hashem, like the Makom. Well, the Ayn, yeah. No, not Ayn. Ayn is Ayn with Ayn. But this Ayn is with Aleph. Oh, okay. And Ayn falls like an insight or a eureka, a eureka moment, aha moment. But yeah, like it's 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 amazing how we're able to conceptual. We don't even realize this, like the, the the human brain and what it's capable of. And we say that that's linked to your spiritual. Now that being said, it's not entirely spiritual because you can use your brain for a lot of really clever evil things as well. But the point is, is that once we're able to empower our minds, right? We have a we have a fighter's chance at making our lives really fantastic, you know, and and and, and to uh, to be able to. Um, Kind of capture the destiny that that we can we can and must achieve. Of course, first and foremost as individuals. But you know, if you zoom out a little bit, this collectively as as a, as a people as well. So that that would be number three. Let's go to number four here. Uh, fourth reason why we study Torah. We had two last week, and this is the second this week. So there's a very interesting Talmud. Talmud says there's three mitzvahs that are scenarios that have never happened. Okay? For example, in Tiseitze, right? In um, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Ben Soromor, that's right. We find this this discussion of a wayward and rebellious son. Mm -hmm. Basically, he's a kid who really likes alcohol and likes meat. And he has to steal money from his parents and go buy meat and eat it in bad company and eat an enormous amount of meat and drink an enormous amount of wine and what kind of wine? It has to be kosher wine, kosher meat. All these laws, there's, there's, there's a list, I'll tell you, there's a list of 15 or 20 or 30 <coughs> different laws. His parents have to be the same height, the same weight, the same voice, and this and that. Everything's been perfect. 
and they have to voluntarily decide to take him to court, they bring him to court, and they give him lashes, and then he does it again, and they voluntarily decide to bring him to court, and they, they kill him, execute him. And he has to be between 13 and 13 in a couple in three months. And the Talmud says, it never happened, and it never will happen. And the obvious question is, if it never happened, and it never will happen, why do we need to know about it? Right. The Torah should have said, 610 mitzvahs are enough. Because there's three mitzvahs that never happened, never will happen. You know? All those people will have to change their union. You know, see, those people like to say, um, you know, Yitzchak613 at gmail.com. You know, uh, right? Shmuel613 or 613shmuel at gmail.com, right? That will have to change to 610. Right? Let's get rid of three mitzvahs. Let's consolidate. Let's make this easier for us. I thought that's the question. Huh? What's the other two? The other two are, um, number one, Irani Dachas. Irani Dachas is a city that the entire city goes to idolatry. Entire Jewish city. Not only that, it's a, a Jewish city that's not a border town. A Jewish city that has... Um, that has disruptive elements from within, not from without, that disrupts the men, causes the men to do adultery, not, not the women. All these members, all these seems very bizarre laws, kind of seems maybe perhaps would, be, would seem to be arbitrary. And then, and not only that, there's not a single Jewish article, so there's not a single mezuzah in the city, there's not a single uh, tefillin in the city, there's not a single Torah scroll, nothing, right? Can you imagine? You know, you can't find a city of Jews today where there's no mezuzah. Everyone has mezuzahs in the door, right? Not a single one. And what do you do? You take everything out of the house, bring it all into the major part of the city, you burn it all, and you kill everyone in the town. Thomas says, never happened, never will happen. So let me ask you the question again. If it never happened, never will happen, why do it? And the third uh, is uh, tsaras, where you have um, leprosy, but not leprosy on someone's skin or on someone's clothing, but, huh? On the house, that's right. Right, you got to have spiritual splotches appear on the corner of your walls. It has to be with uh, on, on 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 the corner on on, on one uh, brick and then the other brick. It's not it's not possible. Did this happen? Did this happen? It's not. No, on the wall. When do you say it happens? I'm just asking. I think it happened like in one of the cities. No? Okay, so like this, so Rashi says. When, I know it's, let, let, let me finish this point, then I'll, 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 I'll ask you a question. Sorry. No, it's good. It's really brought up. I wasn't planning on bringing it up, but it's good to put the bring up. And this is a little bit of a thing you kind of have to keep your head. There's a lot of moving parts to what I'm about to say here. So, these three things never happen, never will happen. So, why was it written, says the Talmud? Now, what's interesting is if you look at Rashi, when Rashi says, uh, Rashi on the Torah, where it talks about Saras on the house. Rashi says, why does the Almighty bring Saras on the house? Because we find uh, treasures. Exactly. It says, because when the, when the indigenous people were there and they saw the Jews coming, what did they do with all the gold and silver and gems and, you know, gems and, 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 and jewels? What did they do with them? They put them behind the wall. Hid them behind the wall. And... Uh, and they covered it up. And the Jews say, okay, you guys are out of here. Move into your brand new house. 
Everything's fantastic. But there's so much gold there. It's like within a few feet of you, you can't find it. Do you know what the mighty does? The mighty makes a, a splotch. And you're so devastated. Hey, what did I do? Why did I do this to me? It's so terrible. You got to take out those bricks. You take out the bricks. Voila. All the gold and silver and diamonds, jewels, all there for you. That's what Rashi says. Hold that thought. Okay? Because there's an obvious contradiction between Rashi and the Talmud, right? Because if the Talmud said this never happened, and Rashi telling us the reason why it does happen, there can't be a reason why it does happen if it never happens, right? So if it happens, you could say the reason why it happens is because there's gems, jewels, and diamonds, and gold, all that behind the wall. But if it never happened, never will happen, then don't give me a reason why it does happen, right? Okay, so let's go back to the Talmud. Talmud's question, why was, it, why was it written if it never happened? Talmud says, Drosh v'kabel schar. Study and gain reward. Now, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean to gain reward? What does that mean? So, you know, it could mean, I think simply, there's mitzvahs that we have. We study them. And even if it's not relevant to you, you gain rewards. So my brother was speaking about it earlier that you have people studying the laws of Leviticus and it's not relevant to them. Right? Because they're not coins. And they don't live in Israel and they don't have the Holy Temple. So it's not relevant to them. But is there no reward for Torah study? There is. And therefore, if they might hear this more Torah study, even if it's not relevant to us, it's more opportunity to get more reward. That's, I think, the simplest understanding. But there's deeper understanding. And that is that there's lessons contained within these mitzvahs. Exactly. So even though all these three mitzvahs have a lot of different details on the law. So for example, the one that talks about, about Ben Soromore, Wayburn Belly's child, what does that say? That says, well, if the parents are different or the parents disagree or the parents... Uh, in any way there's any lack of cohesiveness between them, we can't blame the child. The only time you can blame the child is if the parents are not giving him mixed messages. And it gives us a whole list of things. And both parents have to do this, and both parents have to do that, and both parents have to fall into that category, that category. That, that's in the Talmud then, all these? Well, it's brought, right, it's Talmud that's uh, brought down from the Torah. That's right. Okay. The Talmud organizes them all. Um, and if, if either parent has any, uh, uh, any handicap, right? And it's what it, I think the lesson is, is that you want to blame a child for his misbehavior? Well, you could do that, but only if it's not coming from the parents. And if parents give children mixed messages, right, the kid is going to have a hard time. Wow, that's an important lesson. And we learned the Torah... Not because of the actual application of law never happened, but because of the lessons contained within it. That's just one. There's many lessons contained within it. And that brings us to Rashi. So imagine you find Saras in the corner of your house. Right? You're devastated. Brand new house. Beautiful. Top of the line, right? Well, everything's beautiful. And then you're going to start dismantling your house. You're devastated. You start dismantling your house. What happens? Voila. Get all the gold and silver and jewels and diamonds and all that. It's fantastic, right? 
and says the Talmud that this never happened, never will happen, but there's a lesson. And you study for the lesson. And you study for the lesson, and that's your reward. So what could the lesson of that be? Maybe this is all part of the lesson, that sometimes terrible things happen, you have to start dismantling my house. Terrible things. And then you do it, and you find, hmm, I'm much better off. So Rashi is essentially working through what the lesson is. Right? And the Talmud says it never happened. Of course it never happened. But, imagine, but, but, but the Torah is telling us what would, it, would happen, and therefore we can learn from that what the lesson is. And Rashi is essentially playing a part of the Talmud, telling you what the lesson would be. And who knows, which one of us could say in their lives that they haven't been <coughs> devastated uh, about something that happened, you know, you didn't get into the right school that you thought was the best school for you, or you were dating this boy or girl or whatever, and you were devastated when it broke up, or whatever it is. Or you put in a bit of the house, and then someone got at the house, and, you know, and then everyone has these stories in their lives, and they're so devastated at the time, and then they realize afterwards, no, 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 the money kind of prepared the gold there for me. Right? And I, what I thought was my devastation, what I thought was my, my doubtful, what I thought was my dismantling of my house, was indeed my discovery of something amazing. And that's the lesson. But could it also be the silver lining thing? Yeah, well, silver, oh, silver lining is one way to look at it. One way to, to, yes. And, and we have that. That's the lesson. So sometimes the mitzvahs, they teach us about life. You know? We learn things. Of course, that's not the core reason of the mitzvah. And I think that even if we study something, we gain a practical lesson out of it. That's not it. There's going to be multiple, multiple levels. For example, the Mishnah says that there are certain mitzvahs that we do them here in this world, but the fruit, uh, or the fruit, we eat the fruit, we, we eat the fruit of our of our toil in this world, but the <coughs> principle is in the world to come. So we gain things out of mitzvahs. If you do a mitzvah, if you honor your parents. You become a more thoughtful, more mindful person, more appreciative person. And that's good for you in this world. Why? Because you have a better marriage. You'll be a better co-worker. You'll be a better person yeah. if you're appreciative, if you're thoughtful, if you're thankful, if you're grateful. Right? But is that what the mitzvah is all about? No. That's a nice byproduct of doing mitzvahs. <laughs> so there's going to be bright byproducts of doing mitzvahs. And one of the byproducts of Torah studies, we learn these tremendous lessons. Those are really byproducts. That's probably why they're there. I mean, you know. Well, I, I, I'm not saying, uh, yeah, you know, so maybe I mean, byproducts, right? I'm saying, but it's not the core reason why you would do it. The reason why we study Torah is because we study Torah. Right, but I mean, but, the re- um, reason the mitzvahs are there is, I mean, it's all about learning lessons, isn't it? Well, yeah, but it's about changing who you are. And sometimes when you change who you are, you actually, your life in this world becomes worse. Or it could be interpreted as being worse. Why? When you start giving 10% of the money to charity, you're poorer, right? Are you? Or are you not? Right? Someone can say, wait a minute. If I didn't give my 10% of charity, I would have more money, right? Because take 10%, take it off, now put it back on. And someone might say, huh, I am worse off, right? But are you really worse off? The Rambam tells us that no one who's given charity has ever regretted it. Right? Well, of course, you give charity to ISIS or whatever. That's different. That's the point. But if you give charity to Torah, yeah. to mitzvahs, to the shul, right? And then I got, I got a bill. I got a thing in the mail last week from Israel of Houston. 
how much I gave in 20, 2015. Now, I'm, I'm not a big giver, right? Who am I? I'm, I'm, uh, right? I'm, I'm just a clown who teaches Torah, right? Well, I'm not a clown. That's not true. I write. I, I know, but like, I'm not the big donor. I'm like, whoa, that's a lot of money. Like, it's a lot of Mishabayrachs, right? I can't believe I gave him that much money, right? But like, I don't regret it. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm supporting, I'm supporting the shul, I'm supporting the growing institution. Like, that's wonderful, you know? And, and you have an appreciative, appreciative about it. But is that the reason why you're giving it to Dr. No, it's a nice byproduct to become a more generous person. So the, 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 the core element of a mitzvah is something which is so transformational that it's who we are. It changes who we are, and that's really about next world. But there are byproducts that we gain out of this world. You become a better person, you become, you become a better spouse, and you have a better life if you're a better spouse. Well, you become a better spouse with, with mitzvahs, but is that why you're doing the mitzvahs? No. Um, so so, the, so the, all these would fall into the category, yes, we study Torah because we want to study Torah, but there's also a lot of reward that's kind of, we're going to get along the way, and that's very valuable. I want to add one more thing here. Um, so we mentioned that there's some mitzvahs that we can't do. Now, what's the problem with having mitzvahs that you cannot do? It's a problem. Why? Because how many positive mitzvahs do we have? Anyone knows? 248. 248. Okay, 248. Is that a random number or not? It's what? So what is it? It's all the limbs in the body, right? We even have a book written in the 16th century that goes through limb by limb, mitzvah by mitzvah. Break down. Seva charedim. 248 mitzvahs, 248 limbs, and which mitzvahs correspond to which limb? Now, what does that imply? Think about that. We have the exact same number of mitzvahs as limbs. It could be random. It's just random. But, or it could be that these are actually mirror images of each other. I don't know which came first. I would assume that the Torah came first, right? So the Torah had 248 mitzvahs. Therefore, the Almighty made us with 248 limbs. Is it possible that the Almighty could have kind of consolidated all the limbs that we have within ourselves, all the organs into one organ? Like, instead of yes. a liver and a spleen well, and, a, and a kidney and, and yeah. right, just do it all in one, right? Is it possible that maybe we're constructed in the, this way because we're, we're parallel to the Torah? Well, maybe it's the opposite. Who knows, right? I would assume it's, it's the former, but maybe the Torah was... Either way, they're exact mirrors of each other. Now, what does that say? What does that mean? It means if we do mitzvahs, we become complete. What happens if someone says, hmm, I'm going to do all mitzvahs, send one? It's like taking a limb away. Right, Exactly. It's like spiritually, you're walking around without a limb. Now, some limbs are more important than others, right? The appendix can come in. Well, I don't know if the appendix is right. Um, but yeah, listen, you can lose a finger and you still have a very happy life, right? You see people today that they have, you know, that they're, God forbid, amputated or something like that, and they're, they're able to walk because they have artificial limbs. You know, but if someone takes your heart out, you're dead. <laughs> you're dead, right? Right? But you have to have it, right? So there's certain mitzvahs that we cannot exist without them. By the way, you know what those mitzvahs are called? No, well, there's a name for them. It's called kares. Mitzvahs that have kares in them, which means if you, if you transgress this mitzvah, you're cut off from the people. What does that mean? This is a mitzvah that corresponds to a limb that you can't live without. Exactly. So, well, Lotta say as well, because, yeah, but there are, there are, some, there are some mitzvahs, I say, that have, right, like uh, bris circumcision, right, um, like, um, 
uh, Pesach, for example. Korban um, Pesach, are some examples. Um, so, like, yeah, it's, there are some things that you, you have to have because otherwise you can't live. So spiritually, yeah, we could be alive and be missing ten limbs, but we're handicapped, right? And by doing a mitzvah, we're actually creating the spiritual entity that defines who we are. So we get to the next world. You know what we'll look like? We'll look like the, the human that we built. How do you build humans? With mitzvahs. You ignore some mitzvahs. Okay, so you'll be missing some limbs. What about the negatives? Well, the negatives also, there also corresponds. For example, the negatives, in one place we're told, 365 uh, uh, negative mitzvahs, that is the 365 sinews that connect a person. It's like the connective tissue. So like, you know, you can have, it kind of keeps it all together. Kind of, it's, it's the guardian for, for, your, for your human, right? You say, hey, you really need skin? What does skin do for you? It just keeps it all in place, you know? Okay. Uh, you know, what does your tissue do? What's a function of a tissue? It's, it's all to assist, kind of keep it all together. You know, so this is what we're doing with mitzvahs. We're building ourselves. We're building humans. We're building our avatars. That's what we are. We're building an avatar. And we get to, we get to have, we live, we are our avatar. And then what happens? We adore some, we adore some. Okay, we'll have to live that kind of life. But there's a problem, ladies and gentlemen. The problem is, is that we can't do all the mitzvahs here, right? What do you do? We're toast. There's so many mitzvahs you can only do in Israel. So the misses you only do if you're a man. So the misses you only do if you're a woman. So the misses you right if you're a Kohen or only if you're a king. Right? What do we do? The Talmud says if you study mitzvahs, you study the Torah corresponding to the mitzvahs. As if you did. As if you did them. So the Torah helps us reach this completion that we so that we all look look forward to and strive for. And. I'll tell you guys another secret. This is a secret because we're on, the, we're on this topic. So if a mitzvah creates a limb, and all the mitzvahs create <coughs> a human, and that's how who we are in Olam Abba. And if we ignore a mitzvah that, 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 that corresponds to a limb that we need to live, well, then we're kares, we're cut off. Is there any way, is there any way to have any shortcuts? Is there a way to not build ourselves limb by limb by limb by limb by limb instead to do it all at once? Hmm? Is there a way to do it? So this idea of Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying yourself in God, for God's name. So we talk about martyrdom. We spoke about this a few times. I think it's kind of relevant to kind of reverse back about that. There's certain mitzvahs, gun to your head, you give up your life for No, uh, rape or illicit immorality. Yes, yes. Um, and, well, idolatry, adultery or rape, and murder. Murder, murder. Three mitzvahs we give up our lives for. And what happens when someone gives up their lives for God? You know what happens? Instead of going step by step by step by step by step, they're essentially taking their whole entity, their whole life really, and jumping in all at once. 
And that's an example of what the Talmud calls, it's possible to acquire your world in one instant. And instead of spending a whole life, so to speak, laboring bit by bit by bit to create your entity, your avatar, you do it all at once by jumping you know, feet forward, head first. And that's the idea, by the way. And, and, and we read in the Talmud about Rabbi Tiva being so delighted to give up his life for God. And to us, that's suboptimal, right? But when you look at it in this, in this light, that the whole purpose of what we're doing here is to build humans, right? To build with mitzvahs. And then you have an opportunity to do all at once. You'd be delighted. You want to seize that opportunity, right? Is that the, the best shortcut? It's still hard for us to hear. But either way, that's how it all fits in, right? Every mitzvah corresponds to one part of our spiritual entity. We do them all, we're complete, right? That's, a, that's our life's journey. We ignore some, okay, we're incomplete. And hopefully the ones we ignore are the ones that aren't so noticeable, aren't so important, right? And I'm not trying to condone ignore it, it's not my point. The point is, we certainly take the big ones and, and we embrace the big ones and we don't, uh, we, you know, we, we don't... Uh, um, we don't negotiate. Uh, we, you know, we don't compromise on those. But this idea of having opportunities to do it all at once, very, very empowering, very powerful. And that is the insight behind giving up your life for God. Because when you do, when you give up your life for God, it's a dedication of your entire being for God. And that's a way to kind of jumpstart and 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 fast forward and take a shortcut around what would otherwise be a lifelong journey. Well, a lot of people did it. There's a bunch of Kamaras that talk about um, about people who gave up their lives uh, for God. And, you know, essentially they accomplished their mission in one instant. Very powerful. Guys, I look forward to seeing you next week. Um, this was about, uh, once again, why we study Torah. We only did two more. Uh, to sharpen your mind, this is right? Like but, this is, but this is like, this is like yeah, it's, it's two more, but it's really, you know, Yes, very encompassing. Look forward to seeing you guys next week, guys. Lots of fun. Thank you. Life has